To what's this Dao all about? A lighthearted look at Taoism featuring Dr. Carl Totten and Todd Perry. Carl is the founder of the Taoist Institute in North Hollywood, California. Todd Perry knows a little about Taoism and is mainly here because he owns a few microphones. Now, let's learn what's this Dao all about. Welcome back to What's This Dow All About? My name is Todd Perry. With me is the great Dr. Carl Totten. Hello, all. Good to be here. And it's a pleasure speaking with everybody, uh, live in full color sound. Um, it's a warm day here in the valley. <laughs> oh, yeah. On today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about it. We're going to do a book report on a book called Zen and the Art of Archery. Mm. And that we're going to dovetail into a little discussion, a little primer on Zen. Uh, and then also we're going to discuss the Taoist perspective on learning because I think it's a very, at least for me personally, confusing part of the Tao Te Ching where a lot of it is about abandoning knowledge and abandoning learning. And it seems counterintuitive to the Tao. So we're going to have Dr. Carl enlighten us on this. And then if we have time, chapter one of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, we're going to start off a, a book, uh, Zen and the Art of Archery. On a couple shows back, I talked about how I was lucky enough to uh, call and talk to um, uh, Benjamin Hoff, the author of The Tao of Pooh. Yes. And so in that conversation, in which I took copious notes, um, he told me to read a book called Zen and the Art of Archery. Um, so I, I picked that up. Um, interesting, he just put up on his website that this revolutionary translation of the Tao Te Ching that he's doing that is not going to be released. So I don't know what the case... Ever? Possibly not. Like something like he couldn't... He put a very vague uh, comment on his website and that was about it. So I'm going to have to get to the bottom of that <laughs> and maybe be able to share that. I'll, I'll give him a ring. I'll be like, oh, remember me? <laughs> uh, just if you could tell me and the listeners why that's not coming out uh, or just send me the book and I'll read it. <laughs> and I'll sell it. Um, yeah, so that was that. Was that. So in our, in our conversation, he told me to read the book, uh, Zen and the Art of Archery. And for those of you who want a good quick read, it's, it's only about 80 pages. And it's basically about, uh, it's by a guy named Eugen, I guess it is, Harigel, who is a German philosopher who goes, it, the book came out in 1953. And he wants to learn about the way, you know, the art of Zen so he goes to learn it through a um, Zen master who teaches him via archery. So he's saying that basically in order to learn Zen, you have to learn it through some kind of other means. And the, the interesting thing about the book is it's about a, you know, a guy who has like a big six-foot bow, you know, these huge bows, and in order to get it to propel the arrow, he has to come in sync with this bow via his breathing and via and he has to learn how to understand and get what the Zen masters call the great doctrine, which is this learning of how, the, the state of pure selflessness. 
and how then the exercise becomes this kind of fluid dream and eventually the archer learns how to make the arrow shoot itself mm-hmm. versus him shooting the arrow and this is about a six-year journey that he went through with the master and trying to figure this one out and countless hours in frustration working with the master, trying to make this bow work by itself and all that that entails for the meaning for the rest of his you know, life. So, um, And the difficulty, I think, was in what that word you just used. He kept trying. <laughs> yes, and yes. Trying and, and trying. trying. <laughs> and then he's trying to figure out how to do it without <laughs> trying, which is seems impossible. <laughs> and I won't spoil the ending. But he... Yeah, the Japanese longbow, they have an art they call Kyudo, the okay. art of Japanese archery. And they have that long, yeah, that long bow. And especially in the old days where they actually sometimes would uh, practice the shooting on horseback also. Right, yeah. So sometimes they do it on the ground, and sometimes on horseback, sometimes while in motion, you know, walking, running, riding a horse. You know. Yeah. And learning how to see that there was no separation between one and the target. And when, when one hit that sweet spot where there was no separation between one on being here and the target being there, and the connector, the connection being the arrow. Yeah. And one could just let that happen. It was perfect. Right. Every time. <laughs> right. But getting to that point. Uh, not so easy. <laughs> not so easy. Uh, and it says in this book here that if, if one really wishes to master, to be the master of an art, technical knowledge of it is not enough. One has to transcend technique so that he, it becomes an artless art growing out of the unconscious. Yes. Very much uh, in harmony with uh, the definitions of Zen, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And, and the big point to get to is saying, the master says, the shot will only go smoothly when it takes the archer himself by surprise. It must be as if the bowstring suddenly cut through the thumb that held it. You mustn't open the right hand on purpose. <laughs> so if you look, he's holding the bow with his left hand, Pulling the string, the bow and arrow back with his right hand, yes. and so he gets in that position through taking a long breath and getting himself out of the way, and eventually uh, it will shoot naturally. And it's like all of the various uh, types of uh, creative uh, endeavors, whether it's um, you know flower arranging, or the tea ceremony, or martial arts, or building something. You know, they all, from a, from a Zen perspective, are, are coming from that same contempt, contemplative space, you might say, where to the extent that one can get out of one's own way, and the action just happens spontaneously, Again, whether it's doing calligraphy, whether it's building something, whether it's shooting an arrow, whether it's breaking a stack of boards in karate, mm-hmm. whatever. Only when one gets out of one's own way, gets out of one's head, <laughs> and, and stops being so self-conscious, mm-hmm. that's when the perfection of the moment presents itself. Right. Uh, and, and, and a lot of it has to do with breathing 
and they, they talk about right shots, which is just, you have that spontaneous, you know, perfect shot. After right shots, the breath glides effortlessly to its end. Yes. Whereupon air is unhurriedly breathed in again. The heart continues to beat evenly and quietly, and with concentration undisturbed, one can go straight on to the next shot. But inwardly, for the ar- archer himself, right shots have the effect of making him feel that the day has just begun. He feels in the mood for all right doing, and what is perhaps even more important for all, right not doing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this feels like Wu Wei. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Because remember, actually in the history of, again, this is Zen we're talking about, uh, Chan in the Chinese, uh, Zen or Chan, r- really it, it was a kind of a combination of things. You know, originally coming from uh, India through the uh, monk uh, uh, Bodhidharma, mm-hmm. when he went to ch- China to the Shaolin Temple, mm-hmm. and then there he, of course, was exposed to the Tao, mm-hmm. and so this is really a blend of traditional Buddhist concepts and notions and Taoist mm. to create this new kind of synthesis, right? called Chan or Zen. Yes. And th- there was one kind of state of mind of the Zen master. And, and, and the one thing that um, kind of, I guess one would say in kind of a perfected state, uh, that maybe your, your, your dear friend who is the last returner, is to be free from the fear of death does not mean pretending to be oneself in one's good hours, <laughs> that one will not tremble in the face of death and that there is nothing to fear. Rather, he who masters both life and death is free from fear of any kind to the extent that he is no longer capable of experiencing what fear feels like. So you can't, that's, I don't, and and they say a lot of that comes through meditation, but to eventually meditate away the idea of fear, and part of me says that would be the most wonderful thing in the world because I would no longer feel fear and that would never, no longer be a roadblock Mm -hmm. to, you know, achieving or just doing things or anything or just a massive roadblock that fear is or people wouldn't be able to motivate me by fear <laughs> you know because pe- pe- people manipulate each other through fear all the time and and then the and the, but also that idea of a lack of fear scares me because it might meet lead me to do things that are uh, you know that are that are stupid <laughs> you, you know <laughs> Yeah, it, I, it, again, it's a big question. What, what, what motivates people? You know, if you're walking across the street and a car is coming, fear might stop you from walking in front of that car because you have a good idea of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's going to hurt. <laughs> it's going to yeah. break my bones. It may kill me. At the very least, it's going to be very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be in the hospital for days, weeks, months. You know, um, so. Do you need fear to stop you from stepping in front of that car? Or do you see the car coming and going, you know, negative outcomes will accrue in my life if I step right in front of that car. So I'm going to take the uh, a better, I'm going to make a better decision and not do that and stop instead or, or turn right instead of left yeah. because it's just in my best interest to do so. Right. See, fear per se it's coming inner. from that other heart, right? right. It, yeah, it, it, you're you're coming from a place 
where you're able to see all of the ramifications of your actions and then make the make a good choice. Right. In the moment. In this moment, the best choice for the unfolding of my life is this. And so you just do it. And that's different from reacting to fear exactly. and being in a reactive mind. Now, right? and this was a very this example was a very tangible and physical physical one. Mhm. Now, just think about all of the other fears that we have in our lives, the yeah. mental ones, the emotional ones, the relational ones, mm -hmm. you know, you know, the, the uh, trying to avoid looking a certain way one. Right, you know, yeah, 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 the, yeah. The ones that basically are attached to our ego. Yes. Our ego not being fulfilled, and then we are afraid of how we'll look or appear mm -hmm. or how others will might judge us and right. so on. Yeah, you know, when you dive into that swamp, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard to extricate yourself. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is, for the most part, what we're having to deal with. Right. I mean, I mean, you have to teach little children, you know, don't stick your finger in the plug, uh, you know, don't walk over the cliff, you know, don't step out in front of a, a, a truck that's coming down the street. Right. You know, and, and you have to, some, you know, sometimes rely because they don't have the wherewithal, the cognitive development yet to be able to reason and think about those things. They may not even understand right. what a plug is, right? Right, oh, it, yeah. They must just, oh, that looks fun. Yeah. Oh, I'm dealing with that right now. Yeah. You've got a little one. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Hopefully not exploring plugs yet. <laughs> I'm sure the plug day will come. Will. <laughs> or, or, oh, what's this uh, bright colored things? Oh, fire. Oh, let me put my hand in it and see what happens. Right. right. <laughs> oh, no, no. The thing right now is... Let me play with the the uh, the gas burner on the oh. stove. It's a fun thing to play with, and and he loves it. The other thing is a game called Let's Take Dad's a speaker that he uses his Bluetooth speaker, and let's put it on my water table and drown it and kill it. Which is his goal in life is to stick that thing. In the, he just like programmed like a maniac. And then my third favorite game is let, let's beat the cable box like it owes me money. And he just sits and he slaps the cable box. Oh, and I'm like, can't you just be a good child and do something healthy like watch television without beating the cable box? Oh, much more fun making noise. Pap, all day. This is why this is... That's the rhythm of the Tao itself, right? Yeah, that's right. That's why these days we sit and get to do the show are wonderful because I get to get rid of all this family nonsense I have to deal with. A wife and kids and blah, blah, all this. This is much more fun. Uh, no, I love them. They're great. Uh, let's see here. So, so in, yeah, a basic once-over on Zen for the uninitiated... Uh, Dr. Carl, if you can surmise something like, it's, you know, we could do what's the Zen all about next, right? Yeah, yeah for another 50 shows, probably. Yeah. <laughs> you run out of Tao. Uh, yeah, then there's Zen. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was Zen. A good title for something. Right? And, and we put out a show that's completely silent. <laughs> 30 minutes of silence. Now you finally know what this Tao is all about. That's right. right. And you've become one with the void. <laughs> that's right. Just listen to this and... You know, be silent with this, and then you'll know. You'll be there. So, yeah, trying to define something like Zen, like trying to define something like Tao is a, is a, uh, a challenge, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially trying to do it in a, some short, simple fashion. You know, that, you know let, let's go back to the person who's kind of considered to be the founder of Zen, uh, he had many names, uh, depending on your uh, country <laughs> of origin, your language. 
Uh, in India, his name was Bohidharma. In uh, China, his, his name was Putidamo, mm. or just Damo for short. Okay. In Japan, Japanese, and people who practice Zen, they call him uh, Daruma Taish, Taishi. Uh, so, but so Bohidharma or Damo, his definition, okay, of the practice that he created. Okay, he said it's a special transmission outside the scriptures, no dependence on words and letters, direct pointing to the mind of man, seeing into one's nature and attaining Buddhahood. Oh, okay. So that's a lot. For, that's a lot to do, for, to unpack for, from the man himself. Yeah, <laughs> that's what he said it is. Mm -hmm. And so the word Zen now it 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 it's associated with uh, it comes from, again from the Chinese word Chan, which in modern Mandarin means meditation or contemplation. Um, it comes from an earlier Sanskrit term. Dai, daihya or dayan, which means to see or to observe. Uh, uh, and the Indo-European root behind the Sanskrit is uh, something that means, to, again, to see or to look at. It shows up in Greek where it developed into something the Greeks called uh, sam, sama, uh, which it was the basis of the English semantic. You yeah. know. See, so th this this is kind of spread all over the world yeah. and has influenced ways of thinking uh, around the world. Um, so I think that when I think about Bohidharma and what he did when he went into China to teach, the the Buddhist monks, the the practitioners who lived in monasteries. The Zen, the not the Zen, the Buddhism that they practice was very much tied to scriptures. And remember, Bohidharma's first definition was a special transmission outside of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So he felt that rather than sit and read text for hours a day, trying to understand it and then trying to follow that understanding to somehow move into awakening mm -hmm. and becoming enlightened, right. if you will, seeing into one's nature and attaining Buddhahead, he says, no, no dependence on words and letters, direct pointing to the mind of man. So the idea that, uh, of going through the archery expression in order to find that space. Mm -hmm. D direct pointing to the mind or, or heart of man mm -hmm. instead of reading about it. Oh, maybe if I read... Uh, 10 books, I'll know more. Right. Maybe if I read 500 books, I'll know more. So maybe sooner or later, I can figure it out right. right, in my mind through, like he says, through words and letters. He said, no, that was a trap. Mm -hmm. No, just look into your own soul, your own heart, and when you can perceive and apperceive how you and the Tao, remember he was exposed now to Taoism, how you and nature are, are really the same. Mm -hmm. At that moment, something will click in you and you will wake up. Right. The, the, the kind of the, the goal, if you will, of Zen is this spontaneous awakening into reality. Okay. Into the, and the reality is what? Right now, the right. present moment. 
the present moment. My Zen teacher, you know, he, he, he laughs at us sometimes and he says, he says, people ask me, how come every time you talk to us, all you ever talk about is the present moment? Yeah. <laughs> and he says, because that's all there is. Yeah. That's all we got. Yeah. <laughs> that's all there is. But the present moment contains everything, all possibility. Because the present moment includes the entire universe. It includes all of creation and every conceivable possibility of infinity. Mm -hmm. If you are one with that, you're probably doing pretty much okay. Right, yeah. <laughs> you have returned to yeah. the source. Not a whole lot is going to knock you off your perch. Yeah. <laughs> and so Zen is, Zen, Zen is tough in that sense. Zen is a really tough practice, I think, because you, you don't have a lot of external things to kind of hang your hat on. You know, you, you can't read and expect to understand it. You can't just meditate and expect to understand it. In fact, trying to understand it is a good way to probably not understand it. Right. You know, because it's moving beyond logic. Mm -hmm. It's moving into another way of being in the world and perceiving in the world. It's really, where are you coming from? Mm -hmm. It's really, where you, like the hippies used to say in the 60s, yeah. where are you coming from, man? Yeah. <laughs> and this is all about where you're coming from. And to the extent that we define our identity from external sources or external exterior practices or what someone else tells us to do or what someone else believes is correct or what's written in some book, to that extent, from a Zen, and I might say from a Taoist perspective, you're going to remain confused and lost. Mm -hmm. Which is why in Zen, one of the main activities that happens is just quiet sitting. But while you're quiet sitting, frequently the master will give you an exercise called a koan. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what's the sound of one hand famous clapping? One. Or, yeah. This is the sound of two hands clapping. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Now, there's no rational way to answer a question like that. Mm -hmm. Because the one hand... Can't clap. It can't clap in the normal way. So the only way to answer a question like that is to go into the field from which that question sprang mm -hmm. and, and try to encapsulate the... The, the truth of perceiving that field so that inside one's consciousness, one can arrive at an answer that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. because there's no logical way right. to answer that. But because we have been relying on, as Bohidharma said, uh, words, letters, you know, the, in other words, the logical left brain, we've been relying on that to try to make sense of reality and to try to use our left brain understanding, therefore, to try to wake up mm -hmm. and become an awakened being, uh, we're missing the boat. Right. Now, what did, legend says that Bohidharma, when he went to China from India, first of all, they said he did something apparently remarkable. He supposedly climbed over the Himalaya by himself. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> something I don't know if anyone ever done before. Yeah. And then wound up at the uh, court of the emperor of China. Mm. Now, the, this particular emperor of China had spent years, uh, he, he had converted to Buddhism, 
and he had built up Buddhist practice all over China. He had built temples and shrines and monasteries. He'd put a lot of resources into Buddhism mm -hmm. and into building up Buddhism. And he was very proud. He was very vain and proud of all he had done. In fact, here he is confronted with the latest kind of incarnation, if you will, of the Buddha, you know, this Bodhidharma. It's come to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he is bra basically bragging. He's bragging to Bodhidharma, oh, I've done this. I've built these temples. I've built these shrines. I've built these statues. I've done all of these things. And then he pointedly asks Bodhidharma, of what value is all of this that I have done? He essentially was seeking brownie points in heaven, yeah. basically. Yeah. Am I going to go straight to nirvana and right. transcend all you know worldly you know matters? And so, of what of what value is all of this that I have done, uh, great sage? And what did Bohidama answer him? It's of no value whatsoever. <laughs> That's perfect. Oh, you don't talk like that to the emperor of China? No. <laughs> In fact, the emperor was struck dumb. He couldn't even speak. So Bohidharma made his escape. And when the, the emperor came out of his trance, he ordered his troops to track this man down and kill him for having the temerity to speak to an emperor like that. Oh, that's great. And that's great. Uh, Bohidharma is said to have on one way. That's why you'll see pictures of him. Right, holding one shoe, he supposedly you know crossed over the Yangtze River. You know, kind of you know, right? Maybe kind of like his kind of the Chinese story of kind of the walking on water, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and um, and escaped. Where did he escape to? The famous Shaolin Temple. Oh, okay. Right? You know, the famous Buddhist monastery in China, where it's also known as kind of the birthplace of Chinese martial arts. You know, centuries later, mm -hmm. Kung Fu. Remember, you, you, we all saw the TV program, right, with David oh, yeah. Carradine. Oh, and it yeah. was all at the Shaolin Temple, right, you know, where they were practicing Buddhism and, and Kung Fu and all that. So, that. so this leads into a lot of stories and legends and myths, you know, that go on for the next 1,500 years. Because this encounter we're talking about was back around the 5th century, um, you know, CE, uh, uh, AD. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so Bohidharma... He has this encounter with the emperor of China, <laughs> and then he escapes to the, this temple. Now, he goes to the Shaolin Temple, and he kind of presents himself as the kind of the reincarnated Buddha, essentially. Uh -huh. Now, he's saying, no, no, a direct pointing to the mind of man, no dependence on words and letters. But what are they doing? They're sitting around for hours a day reading scriptures. Right, and he's saying, "No, this is a special transmission outside of the scriptures." So even there, he was not particularly warmly welcomed, wow. even though he was who he was. Right. And so, what does he do? He goes up the mountain, right above the temple, and there's a cave there. He is said to have gone in this cave and sat in meditation for nine years, staring oh. at a huge boulder, quote, listening to the ant scream. Wow. That's how in-depth he was and focused. That he uh, yeah. yeah, and at the end of those nine years, his gaze was said to have bored a hole right through the center of this huge boulder. <laughs> yeah. And uh, at the end of that, you know, the, of course, some of the people from down below the temple were coming up to kind of checking him out every now and then. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they saw his level of understanding... 
that's when they invited him to come back and start teaching. Wow. And the first thing he did was, again, they were sitting around reading scriptures for hours a day, uh, sitting in meditation, thinking about scriptures for hours a day, falling asleep half the time. <laughs> and so he gave them some practices. He says, no, when your body and your mind are united together, then you shall attain true understanding. Mm -hmm. So he gave them some more like movement exercise, almost like moving yogic type of exercises that would link the body, the mind, and the breath in the present moment. Oh. And that, what he felt, was a more prescient way to actually wake up mm -hmm. and, be, and, and to move into the present moment as opposed to just reading 12 hours a day of, of scripture and then sitting and thinking about that. Right. He felt that was not... No one would ever awaken that way, right. or, or maybe you know one every thousand years or something. He would luck into it, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> he he wanted to up the ante a little bit. Now, a good good transition point actually uh, would be as we talk about Taoism and how Taoism has a strange relationship with learning. Yes, right with book learning and book being a uh, owlish, as one would say uh, from the book uh, the Tao of Pooh. Um, uh, so that, you know, if you look at uh, in the, the Tao Te Ching, there's a couple lines of, when wisdom and knowledge appear, great pretense arises. Yes. The more clever and cunning people are, the stranger events will be. <laughs> Abandon wisdom, discard knowledge, and people will benefit a hundredfold. Abandon knowledge and your worries are over. <laughs> I have the mind of a fool understanding nothing. Those who seek knowledge collect something every day. Those who seek the way, let go of something every day. <laughs> Abandon wisdom, discard knowledge. Oh, wait, I already got that. Uh, those who seek knowledge... Okay, we're good. I found them all. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. And at the same time, we're learning about the Tao Te Ching. <laughs> we're learning about Taoism, and that's improving our lives. And learning about things improves people's lives. So is this a translation thing where... Uh, it doesn't kind of work well from Chinese, or is this a perspective? Or no, I think it's a perspective. <laughs> I, Dao uh, employs a different way to uh, consider and come to a resonance with understanding. Mm -hmm. Remember about not being tied up with words and yeah. letters and scriptures and so on. Dao seeks its sources of, of knowledge different than the way that we've been taught and conditioned to do so by society and its institutions. In Tao, the greatest source for guidance is the Tao itself, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is embodied within our own sense of a self in harmony with that Tao. Right. Um, so we are each a manifestation of the Tao. So by relying on our own inner wisdom and guidance as opposed to something outside that is the way a Taoist awakens to their true self and lives a harmonious life with a deep sense of connection and authenticity and in harmony with the Tao. Okay. Whereas if you're going for, you know, oh, I'm going to read this book and then I'll suddenly be wise, or I'm going to go take this class and I'll suddenly wake up and understand, um, that it, what that leads to is a type of mental, kind of left brain, understanding mm -hmm. which versus is a practical limited. versus a practical understanding or practical application and uh, and worse i think it's what maybe we've been discussing sometimes is that our brains are bipolar mm -hmm. 
-hmm. we're polarized, right? We have a left brain, we have a right brain, right? And, and so if we understand something only from the brain or create something only from the brain, something is going to come along to invalidate that sooner or later. Mm -hmm. We'll create something, even through our understanding, but then through what we don't understand, we will also create that, which will tend to invalidate what we initially understood. Okay. And so that's why I think very often, well, I think we were joking that you know people will say, "Oh, I want money," and right, and then they'll go, "Oh, they'll go all out creating all this money in their life." But then what happens to their life? Or they might even win money, right? Yeah. And then what happens to their life? You know, they become a completely changed person. They start treating people in a very unkind fashion. Yeah. They start isolating and insulating themselves from others. And, and, and they wind up with a life where they have all these material things, but no sense of fulfillment, mm -hmm. no sense of happiness. In fact, they feel quite empty yeah. and, and, and quite disturbed very often. And isolated and, yeah. And often their families will dissolve and break up at that point, particularly people who had, quote, nothing, and then suddenly, maybe through a lottery or something, have something. Yeah, just read the history of those people. Right. It is a litany of absolute misery. Oh, yeah. The oh, worst God, thing you, that could ever happen is to win the, the lottery. The worst thing exactly. that ever happened to them was when they won $100 million yeah. and weren't ready for that. Oh, or, the, or the guys that get a big NFL contract and then... And then, yeah, and then look, what ha or, or, or NBA contract, you, you, you read the uh, life of some of those people and you go, what happened? Oh, yeah. What happened to them? You know, and that now they're living in, impoverished. You know, they owe millions of dollars yeah. because they wasted it yeah. on frivolous things that came out of their what? Yeah, their left brain, their grasping, seeking ego. And so Zen and Taoism is trying to be different than that by being bigger than that. In order to be bigger than something, you have to create space for it. That's mm -hmm. the letting go part. Mm -hmm. Because when you create space, then you allow things to come into creation that you would never have thought of. Mm -hmm. Because you can only think about what you know or yes. what you read about. Yes. You don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah, no. <laughs> but the Tao does. The universe, remember, it's infinite. <laughs> it has every conceivable possibility. Uh -huh. And if we empty ourselves enough to be able to listen to that, that's why the central practice in Zen really is something called Zazen. Yeah. Which is just that. sitting. Yeah, well, like that, the Zen sitting clubs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just sit. <laughs> just sit. And what are you supposed to do when you just sit? Mm. Breathe and sit. Just breathe and sit. Watch your breath. Attend to what's happening as you sit and allow the universe to unfold in your field of consciousness and awareness. Again, it's an expansive... See, by letting go on one end, it expands the other end. Right. By letting go of the brain, which tries to understand things, of course, in a logical way, right? Mm -hmm. If A, then B, then C. Whereas the heart is trying to understand things that it's coming from a position of emptiness and it's trying to perceive things from the perspective of emptiness which allows reality to just 
present itself. Okay. And when reality just presents itself because you're paying attention and allowing it to just be what it already is. Remember, mm-hmm. it's already is. Yeah. We don't have to create it. Right. It's already there. Right. And so this is a very, very different way than, say, reading a cookbook and, okay, I put together this and that, and then I'll you know, make that sandwich. Right. Well, that's a perfect way to bring it all together. <laughs> it's, it's a very different way of thinking about life. It's a very, very different way. And not thinking. Yeah, by not doing. So they talk about not doing, not yeah. thinking, right? Wu Wei, right? Mm-hmm. Effortless action. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it, it, it's the heart of Zen and the heart of Tao beat together. Mm-hmm. They definitely beat together. Yeah. And... Um, they, they again. One is a, is a Chinese way. One is a Japanese, and of course, it spread throughout um, Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, Vietnam, and uh, I mean, just every India. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, every kind of Southeast Asian country you know, now has its uh, you know way of understanding Zen. Uh, that's one of the biggest influences here for people understanding uh, Buddhism here in the West. Right. right. You know, you have people like Alan Watts, you oh, know, yeah. who wrote books, who did kind of podcast, yeah. you know, radio programs, largely talking about what? Zen. Zen. Yeah. Zen. Oh, yeah. I have like five Zen books by him. or what? I might have read them all. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or um, Ram Das. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Who went to India and you know, found a, a teacher mm-hmm. and uh, then came back and he wrote that amazing book. Be here Be now. here now. Right. right. Again, just like my Zen master, he says, how come everybody always says, how, how come all you talk about is present moment? That's all there is. That's all there is. So, do we have uh, time to do an, uh, another chapter of the uh, Dao Te Ching here? I, I don't think so. Well, I think we're kind of we, we, we kinda out of time here, unfortunately. Okay. Well, let me just give you a little exercise yes. that people can practice. Oh, yes. This is an exercise that I do frequently. Stop. Just stop for a moment. Stop thinking. Stop moving. Stop doing. <laughs> and ask yourself, who am I? And then listen. And see what thoughts, images, memories, and notions come into your awareness. Mm. Then ask yourself, hmm, where did these originate or come from? And how do I know? How do you know that they are in fact valid? In fact, how do we know anything? Just holding the space for these segments of awareness helps to guide us towards a deeper understanding of our own unique sense of being a being in the world who is unique and valued for just being who we are in our separate yet awesome uniqueness. And with that, that's been What's This Dow All About? Thank you, Dr. Carl Totten. You're very welcome. And we'll be back soon.